the sun shines bright in the old Kentucky home, tis summer, the darkies are gay. The corn tops ripe and the meadows in the bloom, while the birds make music all the day. The young folks roll on the little cabin floor, all merry, all happy and bright. But by hard times comes a knocking at the door, then my old Kentucky home. Good night. Weep no more, my lady. You're listening to My Old Kentucky Home by 19th century songwriter Stephen Foster, performed by Paul Robeson. Sung like a love song to the state of Kentucky by the crowd at Churchill Downs, its real historical meaning is bleaker. The lyrics portray heartbreak. A man sold downriver to work at a sugar plantation in the Deep South takes his last look at home. The man is, of course, an enslaved black man, or in Foster's lyrics, a so-called darkie. This was changed to people as the song moved out of its time. But this erases essential history. Must bow and the back will have to bend wherever the darky may go. A few more days and the trouble all will end in the field where the sugar canes grow. A few more days. Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our guests tonight are Constance and Ned Sublett. They're the authors of The American Slave Coast, a history of the slave breeding industry. It's an extensive history of American slavery, documenting the ways the brutal institution thrived in spite, or rather because, of the end of America's involvement in the African slave trade in the early 19th century. With the federal prohibition of new imports, people brought from Africa to subjugate, The domestic interstate slave trade boomed. It soon became an essential part of the financial economy and human captivity, a generational affair. If a slave was an investment in a productive commodity, then a family of slaves functioned like a human savings account, one that accrued interest in the form of newborns, whose only birthright was cash value. The Capitalized Womb, with Ned and Constance Sublet, tonight on Interchange. Well, uh, it's uh, a fascinating, it, I was going to call it a story at one point. It's clearly uh, a deep and uh, difficult and troubling history of the industry of slavery, the economics of slavery as well as the uh, philosophical perspective of what human persons might be called or not called, right? As we talk frequently in the book about you know how we determine what a being is, how it's represented in some sense. And um, Ned, as you were talking about slaves, it's easy to say it, Mm -hmm. right? Because this is the conception. Yes. This is not a person, right? Um, That was the legal status. Mm -hmm. And we use, there's this whole uh, 
there's this whole dichotomy of how to speak at this point, which many people will not say the word slave anymore. They will only say enslaved person. And what we do in the book is we kind of divide between when we're talking about people as people and when we're talking about them in terms about slaves as in terms of their market function. So if we're talking about uh, a slave labor force, we'll use the word slave. But if we're talking about people as as people, we call them enslaved people. And like we say, we hope the reader will cut us some slack because it's confusing. And in period sources, the term slave was always used. Unless, of course, we were talking about Southern conversational habits, in which case they would call them servants, really. Yes. They'll always refer to them as servants. Interesting. Well, uh, uh, some key issues that uh, I think it's hard, again, to try to frame this in a way that it's understandable. I think you're talking about uh, tomorrow going to an AP U.S. history class, and it's one of the things that I did want to ask you about because uh, it seemed fascinating to me how, how you frame this particular, again, vast, deep problem that continues to be a part of our national identity in many ways um, that informs us in some sense uh, as a people, I think, also. How you go into a classroom and um, make this real uh, as, as you can um, to children that can't have any conception about it. First of all, I don't think ultimately any of us living today, whatever our age, can have any conception of what it was like to live in the antebellum South in the legal condition of being enslaved. Mm -hmm. We just cannot. The question about how to frame all this material and this history directed toward children is an ongoing question, and it is a question that a lot of people are asking, particularly teachers and mothers, particularly mothers of African-American children. As one friend of Ned's said to him the other day, it has become really difficult to be African-American in this country. And we see the threads of continuity of why it is so difficult to be African-American in this country right now, going back past into the 19th century in particular. There are direct lines of descent from the brutalization of black people by the slavery industry to the way African-Americans are treated today. I think it's really important, as you mentioned earlier, to think of this as a business, that people talk about slavery as though it were a, a method of labor purely, but slavery was in itself a business. It was a huge business, and the Southern economy was the way that the hot cash flow business of cotton, which brought money from outside the country, and the domestic business of slavery interacted. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that it serves to clash for me in some sense, right? The idea of the economics of slavery, which we can talk about in terms of cash, which I think is fascinating in terms of the ways in which I don't think it had been talked about in in my life anyway. To think I can think of the economics of slavery easy enough, but not 
the idea of it being currency in some sense, right? The fact that it was a credit and, and, and debt economy based on slavery, on holding property in slaves, in slave people. Well, I think also we are at a stage in this country in particular in which people who read the book and people who write such kinds of books are in are, are much more capable of dealing with this in terms of its finances in terms of its economics than we used to be because we didn't talk about marketing and money and economies as a normal topic of conversation or even of like news coverage media coverage but we've been doing this ever more increasingly since the 1980s. Yeah, in a sense, the American Slave Coast is a work of historical business journalism. Yeah, that makes some sense. Uh, I think that trying to understand that aspect is important. So uh, we recently have been uh, inundated with this, another sort of look at the mythologies or a new mythology of Alexander Hamilton, um, which I'm sure that you must really be excited by. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, we ha let's just say we haven't seen the musical. Yeah, and well, leave it at that. Um, neither have I. Tickets um, are impossible to get. Right, right. They really are. Yes, they, they are. The economics of that is difficult. <laughs> but the, the, uh, what I, I run into frequently is trying to understand the development of the country within the sort of land speculation that you talked about as well. So uh, your pyramid scheme, you're, you're devising a way to uh, send waste people. This is the whole white trash um, thing that's been going on as well. With The white trash is, are also sent into the wilderness, in a sense, to clear, to clear cut land, to, to sort of waste their lives, making the land saleable, livable, townable, I guess, you know, we could create municipalities and other homesteaders uh, for the, the right people to come and homestead. So, um, And that goes back to the, to the English mm -hmm. who got rid of their surplus population, their surplus unemployed population by flushing them across the Atlantic. Right. So a key distinction here that you make multiple times is the African versus African-American. So the African slave trade and then the distinction as you make in 1808 to say this is the sort of the reality of American culture at this point. This is where uh, it's very clear that this is a, an American industry, right? That, that, it, that it informs what will become America from this point on. Uh, so maybe just expand a little bit uh, on that date. 1808, which was the January 1st, 1808. A lot of people don't know this date. Uh, I think it's one of the most important dates in American history. January 1st, 1808, a date specified in the Constitution as the date before which the African slave trade could not be prohibited by federal law. And it was prohibited at the first constitutionally permissible moment by no less than President Thomas Jefferson as an act of protectionism for the Virginia slave breeding industry. After that, the money stayed at home. Instead of going across the sea, the profits were no longer being made by Liverpool captains and African royals, mm -hmm. but by farmers in Virginia and itinerant slave traders who, by the time of the end of the War of 1812, placed advertisements, which you can easily see if you look through the back issues of any newspaper, any little town newspaper in Virginia or Maryland, 
cash for Negroes. Uh, the key word here was cash. Uh, because cash was very hard to get. And slave traders were actually, to use business journalese, were dispensers of liquidity. It's just, again, it's one of those things in which we, we, we sort of run up against the language that we have to use to talk about a business, to talk about a market, to talk about how we trade in these things, and then to try in the same, in the same breath to talk about people. It's horrific, and that's the, su the subtitle of our book, okay, our book is The American Slave Coast, A History of the Slave Breeding Industry. We went back and forth about what the subtitle would be. We kind of were holding back from having that be the subtitle. It's an offensive subtitle, but it's an offensive reality. And I don't think that saying slave raising is any really improves the situation. Yeah. A good example of how important the raising of slaves was. This comes late in the history of the antebellum South. Theodore Roosevelt's father married a woman from Georgia who is the daughter of a plantation owner. This plantation owner was not doing very well. He was lazy, he gambled, all the rest of it. So when it came time to throw this great, big, fancy wedding, he sold two of the female slaves to finance the wedding, the clothes, and everything. And then another one was given to Theodore Roosevelt's mother as part of her wedding dowry. Oh, dowry, nice. <laughs> Of course, that didn't work so well because she had to go back to New York and live where slavery was not legal. But the woman stayed with her for quite a long time. Mm. You know they look like the children of the Israelites. I'm Doug Storm on Interchange with guests Constance and Ned Sublett, authors of The American Slave Coast, A History of the Slave Breeding Industry. Come on. Yeah, it's just the it's it's too big a it's too big a topic really in in a lot of ways. But the again the thing I think that I keep wanting to figure out or talk about whenever I have conversations similar to this is the the way in which um, you come to believe that this is permissible. So the 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 way in which the culture itself creates the permissibility to to say as you said a, a couple of the so, sort of southern myths you know this is the this is a good way for people to live you know like these slaves have a good life they wouldn't have a, a good life otherwise you know, all these you know the the reasons we we give for these these kinds of things it's it, again it strikes me as such a hard thing to convince other people to say this this is a norm and the way in which people think. Uh, a lot of people at, at IU that I talk to about literature or um, Emerson or uh, Thoreau, or when we talk about the history of people trying to be against slavery, right? And, and, but, but we end up saying, yes, but Emerson um, didn't think black people were you know, on an equal footing either, right? And, and Lincoln doesn't think black people are on you know, an equal footing either. And there are very few people that stand up and say, we're all, you know, one under a creator. Well, they say there's white people and then there's the rest of creation in some sense. This is a hard thing to, to sort of move beyond in these discussions generally. It's such a contradiction, but it didn't happen. It happened very quickly. 
but it did not happen overnight. And the economic benefits of it were so great, so immediately, mm -hmm. from everything to accumulating land, as Ned had pointed out, mm -hmm. that if a planter in Virginia or South Carolina brought over even 50 enslaved people, they still received that amount of land as a head right, whether it be 50 acres in Virginia or 150 acres in South Carolina, and they received it even if the people dropped dead on the wharf as they came in from Africa. So the, the benefit for the person who is the enslaver are huge, and they're right there in front of your eyes, and they are immediate. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, there are a couple of things about this. Number one, in order to be able to treat other people like this, well, it's hard to psychologize, and I want to try to avoid that. I really can't get inside the heads of these people, and I'm not sure I want to try, but it seems clear, which is why we're making largely an economic rather than a psychological argument in here, but it seems clear that it was an essential part of the mindset to consider enslaved people as not people, that is to consider slave, them as slaves rather than people. This goes back to the way the English thought of themselves as a different race than Africans, the notion of race, which, of course, as many people still think that there is a biological category called race. And, I mean, any, any anthropologist or any biologist will tell you that race has no, is, there's no useful definition of race. It's a cultural concept. But to consider that these were, and if we are, if white and black people are different races, then one can be uh, lesser evolved, less, in, in more inferior. So the notion that these people are not quite people and are have the legal status of farm animals, this was so universal from the very beginning of the slave trade, uh, that it was handed down as unquestioned wisdom. But also, there were always people who questioned, and they were repressed because the other side of this is censorship. It was not allowed to speak of this. There was no such thing as freedom of speech in the slave states, certainly not as regarded slavery. There, you could not write an editorial attacking slavery. Uh, you couldn't even mention it. Even to mention slavery was seen as disloyal. And, of course, Southern legislators uh, passed a gag rule in Congress that forbade mentioning slavery in Congress. Hmm. You it, could not have materials that talked about African Americans as human beings or talked about abolition or emancipation or any change whatsoever in the system as it was being run in the South. You could not get these works in the mail. Really? They ex hmm. The post office's job was to examine all of the mail that came, say, from the North. And if anything was suspected to be abolitionist, emancipationist literature, it would be seized. And the person who was receiving it 
might receive some visits, and who knows what would uh, come from that. Hmm. Uh, and there's been a lot of controversy about the national anthem lately, mm -hmm. and I think it's important to recall just who Francis Scott Key was. Uh, Francis Scott Key, after writing his famous lyric, became the district attorney of Washington, D.C., and he was a Jacksonian. He was part of the corrupt Jacksonian spoil system. The summer of 1835 was the summer of frenzy over abolitionist propaganda. And uh, I'm going to read just a short, uh, short uh, excerpt from the book that deals with Francis Scott Key. Um, the, uh, many, many Southern newspapers carried alarmed reports of the arrival of sheaves of abolitionist literature at the local post office because the American Anti-Slavery Society was by then sending tens of thousands of pamphlets down south via the postal system. Um, Francis Scott Key would not be outdone in rooting out terrorism. Quote, are you willing, gentlemen, to abandon your country, to permit it to be taken from you and occupied by the abolitionist, according to whose taste it is to associate and amalgamate with the Negro? He shouted in 1836. It was part of his sensational prosecution of the young Dr. Reuben Crandall for having possessed a trunkful of copies of The Liberator and the anti-slavery reporter in his home in Georgetown. Key kept Crandall in jail for months, and though Crandall was found not guilty, he contracted tuberculosis in prison and died two years later. Key remained district attorney until the Whigs moved into the White House in 1841, using his position to suppress abolitionism wherever he found it. That's who Francis Scott Key was. Mm. It's good to take a knee then and not stand for that. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's time for a break. This is I'd Be So Glad When the Sun Goes Down by Ed Lewis. More on the capitalized womb with Constance and Ned Sublet when Interchange returns in a moment. The matter, baby. Yeah, I can't see. Oh, what got the matter, baby? Yeah, I can't see. No deciding that the driver's boat is down on me. No deciding that the driver's boat is down on me. Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Tonight we're speaking with Ned and Constance Sublet, authors of The American Slave Coast, a history of the slave breeding industry. In our next segment, we'll turn from the past to the present. If it's even possible to wrap our heads around the pervasive culture and economics of antebellum slavery, what do we do with that awareness in our current context? The authors coincidentally finished writing their book right on the cusp of the Black Lives Matter movement. And our conversation took place just as Donald Trump was in the final stretch of his regressive candidacy for president. A fitting through line that traces back to America's history of generational subjugation and a totalitarian culture. 
a police state in other words, that the slave South instituted to protect their institution. For Ned, to know that history is to know that black lives matter. Perhaps the urgency of the current moment can only be truly felt by trying to fully, uncomfortably, understand all that came before. Well, so again, it's one of those things where you, where you, if you tear down which I think is, like, I certainly appreciate it, and I think it's a good thing to tear down these particular uh, mythological instances of, of national culture, right? So, and, and to look at the national culture in this perspective is to try to understand where you are standing now, right? And looking with clear eyes at where you've come from and then where you go next, right? So we're in these very difficult moments, it seems to me, where finding more out about the slave industry, um, hopefully for some people, will help with those moments. But at the same time, again, I'm not sure exactly what people can take from it, right? So what, what is it we want to do when we unravel the myths or we tell the truth, right, when we tell the truth about the story from any perspective, an economics uh, perspective, a business perspective, or a human personal cost perspective. As you mentioned many times, there's 20, 25 million plus perhaps uh, individuals uh, destroyed in some sense, right, destroyed by having been taken from Africa. Um, what do we do with it? Is you know I, I don't know if if life is like that where you can say well of course this is a bitter pill to swallow perhaps or this is a reality and what do you do now I don't know how to like I, I don't know how to come to that question either to say thank you for this what's what's next what do I do now what what do we do with it We've been asked that question by African Americans mm. also on this tour and we ask ourselves. I don't think we began this project with the idea that we would know what we should do now. And also, things change so fast. We did not know we were going to be in the moment that we are in this very moment today when we were writing the book. It changed even as we were finishing the book. Uh, Ferguson happened the massacre in Charleston happened. This is just as we're like trying to write the last words and we are trying to figure out what the last words should be. And I, my, for me right now, my hope with this book is that it will provide everyone who is looking for the information and for the understanding of how we got to this place and that it happens it repeats itself history repeats itself and this time can we change history enough in this country to not have to repeat it again because we are in a crisis moment i don't know how better to answer this because i don't have answers i just know that the way things are are wrong and we cannot stay in this situation I forget who it was said history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And it's certainly rhyming right now. Uh, one phrase that does not appear in our book, uh, the phrase that we've been hearing a lot uh, since the late days of when we were working on it, we spent five years doing this, 
uh, Black Lives Matter. Those words don't appear in our book, but the whole book is Black Lives Matter. And I think one thing we could do right now, it's time to take a deep breath and say Black Lives Matter. If you can do that now, that's something, because there are sure a lot of people out there who can't seem to say that. Hmm. The other thing is, we have seen the increasing militarization of our police, who are civil servants. And we have been talking, we hear the words frequently these days, that we are entering a police state in this country. The antebellum South was a police state. Everything about it was geared as a system to keep people imprisoned and to keep them from having any rights or exercising any rights or to have any property. So anyone who thinks that a police state is a good idea because it makes you safe should think about what a police state is really like and that people in this country actually lived in one. And it was not only the enslaved who suffered under that police state in the South. It was white people too. They did not have the kinds of opportunities we would find in a different kind of capitalist economy such as we had in the North. Police states are very bad for the future and for making money. I think though that what I hope is that readers of this book will come up with their own interpretations of how this history applies. My feeling is that you, you cannot understand the present without knowing history. Whatever we do, the smallest act in our lives is based on history in the sense that we know that this happened yesterday and, that, and it happened this way the day before and that's our guide to how to understand what's about to happen today, even in the most mundane, you know, uh, daily acts or in the grander things. Uh, I would say if you've ever cared for someone with Alzheimer's, you know how frightening it is to see the absence of memory. And we have a great absence of memory about slavery in this country. And what we do with this knowledge now is a question that we don't undertake in the book. It's 700 and some pages. It weighs three pounds. It covers from the earliest colonial times until 1865. Uh, if, you can, if you can read that, um, I'd like to hear what you think, uh, how you think it relates to the ever-changing and pretty awful situation that we're in right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know they look like the children of the Israelites. I'm Doug Storm on Interchange with guests Constance and Ned Sublet, authors of The American Slave Coast, a history of the slave breeding industry. Come on and well, uh, I liked a couple of things you pointed out also, uh, and again, how we, we imagine this being a, an erasure of memory. At the same time, I would argue that it hasn't been known 
So I can't forget what I wasn't taught or understood, mm -hmm. right? So this is a real issue to, to my mind, and again, why I think the book is so important as well, is that if you can get it in front of people, it's at least uh, you, you have the responsibility to make yourself aware of these things, right? I, uh, as I think we said, if you grow up, depending on where you grow up, you don't hear any of these things. And as you spoke, uh, having grown up in the South, you hear things that frame horrifying things as normal, even romantic ideas, right? So we're, we're, we move through That's history right. framed in this way already. Like, I don't have a way to conceive of these things. As we, as we discover the horrifying acts that go on or went on and, um, and have the no ability, as you say, to, to imagine even, right? So these are some of the issues that it's very difficult to bring into people's heads and see black and white and how these things are fraught with all that history that has made us. We didn't uncover any secret documents mm -hmm. in writing this book. What's in here is known. Right. Uh, it hasn't been put in this kind of large-scale chronological narrative. And I think we have our own analysis of it that is unique. But the facts that are in here are not in dispute. Uh, the much of many of the concepts that we're talking about were commonly understood in the 1850s, but were subsequently no longer mentioned. The historian who really turned the rock over uh, was Frederick Bancroft. And it was certainly a light bulb going off over my head when I read Frederick Bancroft's Slave Trading in the Old South back in 2004. Uh, and Bancroft was one of the first real American historians. He uh, used the then-new technique from German anthropology of interviews sociology. and sociology of, of interviews uh, went down south in the 19 aughts and interviewed formerly enslaved people and former slave traders who were still mm. in one kind of business or another, some of them, or were just sitting out by the courthouse now enjoying their afternoons, but actually interviewed them and wrote a book which he published himself at his own expense. For people who want to know more about that, it's still quite a good book today. He published it in the 1930s. One of the great takeaways from his book, of course, when we talk about how slavery is, was organized in an agricultural way, it's farming, so slaves are treated in the same way as, you, as, as, as a farmer would treat any other of his stock, commodities, whatever, to constantly have increased, to be managed, so on and so forth. Many of the smaller slave traders, at least, beyond the very, very big ones, began their lives, their economic lives, as traders in horses and mules. Hmm. After the war, they went back to trading in horses and mules, hmm. which says a great deal about how even the, the dynamics, the, the, the system of the trade itself operated in terms of the driving, the drovers, mm -hmm. all of it. This, it was such an easy, natural transition of one to the other. Right. Wow. 
Well, it's uh, again, it's one of those things. It's just kind of hard to get your head around. Um, I mean, it's easy to get your on one hand. It's it's easy because you frame it in this business framework, as you say. But it's always difficult to just slot a, a black person into into that space, and imagine the world that comes out of it. It's been an awful thing to live with, mm. uh, but we have to live with it, uh, and no matter how many times you see these slave sale ads in old newspapers, at least this has been my experience, it never loses its shock. Mm. I, it never seems normal to us yeah. today. One of the things I also hope for people who don't have a social situ situation in which they have a lot of black friends and so on, if you read this book, that the readers will look out other literature that is being published right now by African Americans to understand, as Ned's friend said the other day, how hard America makes it for us to live in. And um, Garnett's essay. Garnett Cadigan, uh, whose essay on walking while black how different life was for him when he came from Jamaica and walked around as a black man and came to Tulane in New Orleans and suddenly walking while black became a real thing. And then moving to New York, it was even worse. How he goes out on the street, he always dresses in a suit. How he has always got to conduct himself, his body language, to be non-threatening. And even then, Anybody, anytime can stop him. It is horrific, a horrific way to live. It is really bad for your heart. It's time for another break. You're listening to Wade in the Water by Sweet Honey in the Rock. We'll return to our conversation on slavery's inward turn in the American South to breeding human capital right after this. Wait in the water, my God's 
Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our guests tonight are Constance and Ned Sublett, co-authors of The American Slave Coast, a history of the slave breeding industry, about how the end of the African slave trade in the 19th century only intensified the economic power and moral perversity of American slavery. In this last segment, we look at the legacy of slavery in the South and how it still echoes in the structural DNA of our economy and culture. By the time Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, generation after generation of total oppression had already created accumulations of wealth that built upon themselves for whites. And in the same way, generationally recursive accumulations of disadvantage for African Americans. Like an algorithm for repression that's still running two centuries later. Finally, we'll switch from the hard economics, the historical business journalism of slavery, to talk about some of the human stories the sublets came across in slave narratives while researching their book. Well, there are particular things, I mean, I, again, I'm sure you were, as you said, shocked and surprised, perhaps. What, what, um, what made you start in the first place? How did the project begin? The story hadn't been told, really. Uh, I wrote a book... In two th- that was published in 2008 called The World That Made New Orleans, uh, which has done very well. Uh, people seem to like it. I'm happy to say it's sold very well. People are continuing to buy it. I think of it as a fairly dark book, actually. It's about colonial New Orleans, and it ends in 1819, and sort of centered on the Spanish period, the last third of the 18th century, when, when Louisiana was a Spanish colony. In that book, there is a chapter called The Slave Breeding Industry, because this is really a book about the making of Afro-Louisiana and this vast influx of captives from Virginia and Maryland is a very important part of the story. Curiously, though, to me, I find that a lot of people who are buying the book buy it as a celebration of New Orleans, and hardly anyone who has written about the book has written about the chapter called The Slave Breeding Industry. And I found it so strange that this enormous fact about American history is fundamental to understanding the history of the American economy because, cannot repeat this too often, enslaved people were the money of the South, protecting the value of enslaved people as money was the number one political priority of the South. This is such a big story, and I wasn't finding any books that talked about it, at least in the way that I wanted to see it covered. There's just not been a book 
that puts this industry that relied on the capitalized womb on human reproduction as industrial output, which is really unique in world history, pretty much. Uh, the smaller version of it existed in Brazil after 1850, briefly, but it didn't exist in the rest of the hemisphere. It was, as I keep insisting, a unique creation of Anglo-American entrepreneurship. It was fundamental to the founding fortunes of our country, and it explains also something that is very hard to face. Uh, why are black people in a collective sense so much poorer still? Mm -hmm. uh, because the slave breeding industry was a machine for chewing up black family webs in generation after generation as with every generation, as human reproduction made white families richer, the white families grew and prospered. The, in the South, merchant families made strategic marriages, well, in, in the North, too, that, uh, that rivaled European royals' political marriages, locking down these, inter, these interlocking webs of family relations that allowed white Southerners, many of them, to pick themselves up after their human property had been declared as valueless by the Emancipation Proclamation. There were all these webs. They had, they had educations. They had business partners in New York, perhaps. They had all sorts of resources. Meanwhile, in generation after generation, black families have their connections recursively, over and over, cut. Uh, so they never were allowed to not merely accumulate wealth, they accumulated negative wealth. They accumulated drawbacks in every generation. And had it, the overwhelming weight of historical evidence, I think there should be more scholarship on this than there is, is that it takes a very long time, many, many generations, to overcome the effects of inherited wealth or disadvantage. Class mobility is really rarely achieved, even though that's the... American dream. It was the American reality because we had a singularity in America that all this land was being given away. In this, once the it had been confiscated from the indigenous people, and so new fortunes could be founded. Black folks, of course, were shut not only shut out from that; they were part of the fortunes that were founded. Even if we hadn't had a century of white supremacy badly remembered by the minstrelic name of Jim Crow, it would be hard to see how this accumulated disadvantage would have been overcome. So great was this accumulated disadvantage. And I think this always has to be remembered today. This is not merely something that happened a long time ago. It echoes today. It continues today. Well, that's why <clears throat> when we're asked what we think about reparations. We say we think it's a good idea. Now, how it would play out, I cannot say, but the one thing that we seem to agree on, and I think most African Americans agree too, that there should be much more concerted support for high quality education from pre-K through uh, college, and it should be supported financially by our taxes, probably. Mm -hmm. 
And I know that that would be a real problem, but it seems to me the one thing that we can actually do, and we could start doing it right away. Because of course, you know, one of the major book, bootstraps that the Southern plantation owners who lost their wealth had were their son's Harvard education. Hmm. That's a good bootstrap, you know? Yeah, I think I was interviewing um, um, Gerald Horn. I think you cite in your book uh, a, a couple times. Anyway. A brilliant man. Yeah, and, and we were talking about, uh, we were actually talking about Paul Robeson, and Paul Robeson in an interview in I think the '60s maybe uh, talked about the uh, elite institutions of the North being basically Southern, you know, plantation universities. So it's again one of those when those little off the cuff remarks that you go, oh God, you know, <laughs> right? We're just like. That is a truth that you just were, un well, I was unaware of. Again, having not had an opportunity to care, you know, to mm -hmm. think about why it would matter or how it had impacted generations of people. You know they look like the children of the Israelites. I'm Doug Storm on Interchange with guests Constance and Ned Sublet, authors of The American Slave Coast, a history of the slave breeding industry. Come on and um, another thing, real quick, uh, you mentioned the, the depiction of the slave domestic who loves the master's children, right? I was trying to conceive of the fact that as a slave breeding industry, uh, I assume it would be difficult for a woman to feel like a mother. And in the sense that you could have a mothering relationship with a child that wouldn't get sold down the river. It is tragic. There's just no other word for it. The tragic situation that the African-American woman in slavery was put in, her condition, coerced to have as many children as possible, knowing that they could be sold away. If she did not have children, she herself would be sold away as you would sell away a barren cow or horse because it is not reproducing. At the same time, the evidence is overwhelming that enslaved mothers did love their children sure. and that they suffered having their children taken away. It, it, All you have to do is read the slave narratives. Yeah. They're, uh, really, one of the things we try and draw attention to in the book is the importance and really the reliability of, there's, what, 101 or so books that were published ranging from very short pamphlet length to full books that were that were sold pretty well, some of them. Um, these are, not only are they of key historical importance, they're also, I think, a central uh, pillar of American literature, just as much as Melville or Whitman. These, you know, 12 Years a Slave is now the best-known one because of the movie, but there are a bunch of others that could be made into great movies. Uh, Harriet Jacobs, uh, Elizabeth Keckley, Charles Ball, mm -hmm. William Wells Brown, Frederick Douglass. All of these are, these tell you, these tell you how it felt. And then there are the WPA histories, uh, the, the oral histories uh, that were done in the 1930s with formerly enslaved people. There's been some critique of them, um, but I think they're really quite remarkable. They corroborate, there's a mutually corroborating vision of what it was like to be enslaved. There's, I think, more than 2,000 of those interviews. And whatever the shortcomings of the interview procedures with 
white interviewers writing the interviews down in dialect without having recorded them, with uh, respondents being perhaps intimidated or unwilling to speak frankly to a white interviewer. Not all the interviewers were white, but most of them were. Mm -hmm. For all those problems, they give a mutually reinforcing picture of slavery that tells you a lot of what you need to know. Particularly if you read between the lines and also take into account that a lot of the people who were interviewed were young children at the time of emancipation. Hmm. So, but not they, all. But not all. But some, the, some give a picture of the quilting bees and the corn huskings and oh, those were good times. <laughs> yeah, well, they were kids and they got more to eat on those days than usual. So you have to take that into consideration, but by and large, there are certain things that come through in so many of them, and they all are the same in horrifying. terms of testimony of the terrible things that were experienced. And some of those also include the testimony of those people who were children at the time of having their mother disappear. Mm -hmm. And also, one of the advantages of the WPA oral histories is that it had a lot more women respondents. Hmm. The published slave narratives, only a few were by women, uh, but the WPA interviewers had a lot more uh, women's testimony. Oh, I didn't know. Because the men who wrote the memoirs generally were people who managed to escape. Hmm. Most of the people who did escape were men. Women were tied down by their children. They would not leave their children. So most of the people who went, went by themselves, and they were men. Or were more likely to become social actors in some sense. They had become preachers. Some of the slave narratives are by uh, people who had become free and become ministers. One of the remarkable things about 12 Years a Slave is it's, number one, it's the only slave narrative by a musician, um, which is important to me. But also, number two, uh, it's the only slave narrative by someone who had been free then became enslaved, then became free again in the U.S. And there are only a very tiny handful of accounts of people having been captured in Africa. Mm. I mean, I think there's a single-digit number of those. Yeah, so it's, again, one of those things that you, you mentioned um, with Africa and trying to understand what happened to Africa, right? Well, as Ned saw for himself when he was in Angola, the depopulation of the slave trade centuries has left Angola still fairly depopulated. Mm. Yeah, 40 years of civil war also took a severe toll, but there is a depopulation in Central Africa that you, I sort of expected, uh, I, I would, when I went to Angola, I was not expecting to find just, just hundreds of miles of emptiness mm. out there. The, economy of Angola has been based, always been based on extraction. First it was, at least since contact with the Europeans, first it was people and then it was oil. Uh, this is less true in West Africa, I believe. One of the, uh, Warren Whatley uh, suggests that uh, among the consequences for Africa is a more fractured political system than it might have otherwise had because it the slave trade fostered warlordism and prevented the formation of large empires. When the 
Portuguese arrived, uh, Congo was a big empire, reached from present-day Gabon to present-day Zambia, um, for example. And also uh, probably uh, contributed greatly to polygamy in Africa because so many men were taken out. Hmm. Well, yeah. Uh, again, I, I, I think for me this has been uh, one of those, as you say, uh, maybe a thread-pulling moment where you just don't, you don't quite realize how much the world is tied in, you know, how much we are what we are because of this, yeah. and not just right. here in this country, but uh, in other countries as well, and how this is uh, hard to get your head around. Um, it's a great, a great effort to do so, um, and I hope that a lot of people read it. Thank you. That's it for Interchange tonight. We close the show with Slavery Days by Burning Spear. Keep an ear out for an upcoming show on Cuba, discovering its culture through music, another conversation with tonight's guest, Ned Sublet. Next time on Interchange, reimagining activism. As we head into the inauguration of President-elect Donald Trump, a local group says no. No to the erosion of civil liberties and the end of any semblance of a democratic society. We welcome organizers of Inaugurate the Revolution, a group seeking to transfer power into the hands of the disenfranchised and responding creatively to our new political realities. Reimagining Activism, next time on Interchange, Tuesdays at 5.30 p.m. on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. Thanks for listening. I produce Interchange. Assistant producer and editor is Rob Schoon. Jennifer Brooks is board engineer, and Joe Crawford is our executive producer. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie coming up next right here on your community radio station, WFHB. WFHB.